All right, uh, we're uh, going to be in Revelation chapter 3, uh, continuing in our series, uh, The Seven Letters uh, to the Churches. Today we're going to be looking at the fifth letter, and that's uh, the Church of Sardis. You know, these letters are just such a gift to the church. They provide just the opportunity we need sometimes to take our pulse, think about what we're doing, uh, what we should be doing better, all these things. And so you what a gift that we, we get to have these opportunities to examine ourselves and to evaluate how we're doing according to God's word. I like to try to imagine what's going on at this time in Asia Minor when, when these letters are coming out. You know, we don't know how they were delivered. If they, if they showed up, like if there was, a, you know, seven different couriers that showed up all at the same time, knocked on the door and, you know, you've been served kind of thing. Or if, it, if they, if they kind of just went in the order they were written all the way around in the big circle. And if that were the case, you know, maybe words gotten out. Maybe there's a buzz. Hey, there's letters. Jesus is sending letters. Ephesus got one. You know, Smyrna got one. Pergamum. We're, we're next, guys. We're next on the list. And that would be kind of exciting to think about the anticipation building. What's he going to say? Is he going to be pleased? Are there going to be things he's not happy with? What are we going to find out when we get our letter? And my guess is I, I think they probably thought it was going to be mostly good, mostly positive, because I think that's kind of our default position. Nobody, nobody knows. I mean, there's no churches out there that are just saying, you know, we, we, we screw up at everything we do and we're okay with that. You don't do that. You want to, you know, think that what you're doing is, is right and good. But that's not what's going to happen in this instance, because Sardis and Laodicea are the only two churches that got no praise from Jesus, no commendation at all. Um, this tells us something, that it's possible for us not to see what we're doing wrong because we have blind spots. I don't know if you're like me, but I have, I have blind spots. I have things that I just can't see that other people can key in on pretty, pretty clearly, but I can't. We don't always see things accurately. And part of the reason for that is because what we use as our guide, uh, what we use to measure these things in our lives, you can find lots of different things to measure how you're doing. I usually try to find people that are doing worse than me, you know, and measure myself against those. Uh, that works really well. But, but God's word is, is the measuring stick. And thankfully we have God's word to tell us the truth because it's, it paints an accurate picture. It tells us exactly what we need to know, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. And this is good because we would measure our success very differently than God's word would. Um, we, we just would. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, Kevin DeYoung one time pointed out the, the method that churches use to measure success. It's called the triple B method. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, it's budgets, buildings, and bodies. That's the method we use. If, if we have a lot of money in the bank account and we have just this thriving building with all kinds, like an amusement park kind of thing where there's lots of stuff going on, great music, great, all this happening, and we have enough people to fill a small stadium, we've arrived. We've, we've achieved success. That's how we measure these things. And I guess it's understandable because it's, it's hard to measure spiritual success, isn't it? How do you really do that if you can't count it or quantify it in some way? And, and these are methods to do that. So I understand why we use them. But the BBB method, that sounds hard, triple B method, we'll call it that. Um, it, it seems like a good way maybe, but it doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't guarantee a good grade from Jesus. In fact, case in point, Sardis. This is a church that looked successful, but, but were they by God's criteria? So imagine the day has come, the letter has arrived, the church gathers together, they're all excited. Guys, the letter's here. Everybody gather around. Shh, listen, here it comes. 
Jesus starts out by saying, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. And you can see them all, yeah, yeah, we do. You know, high-fiving. It's like, that, that's, that's about as good as it gets, though, unfortunately. The sentence isn't through yet. They just heard the most positive thing they're going to hear. And, and it goes really quickly downhill from here. I'm going to just say a quick prayer. Uh, Father, as we open uh, this text and as we read it together as a church, may your Holy Spirit convict us and show us, Lord, just like a mirror would, uh, what it is about this church that, that really pleases you, that we should reinforce, and what it is that, that, that we want to get rid of and change. Lord, help us not to evaluate what we do here and who we are according to man's standards, but according to your holy word. Amen. So Revelation 3, starting in verse 1, says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, we're going to break this into five parts. Uh, the introduction, the indictment, the instructions, the warning, and the assurances. Verse 1, Jesus introduces himself. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We've already um, looked at what the seven spirits of God are. I'm sorry, the seven, um, seven stars are in, in, in chapter 1. We talked about that. These are the, the angels or the messengers, the couriers perhaps, that brought the letters to the churches. So that one's defined. The, um, the seven spirits is a little harder. Um, and there's, you know, commentators are all over the place here, but I'm going to give you my best, my best go at it. Uh, if you go back, flip it back to chapter 1 and look at verses 4 and 5, you see kind of this introduction in the letter of who this is coming from. And it says to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. It kind of looks like we're being, this is the Trinity. We're, we're seeing the, the three persons of the Godhead here, you know, greetings. This, this letter is coming from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's where a lot of people land on this idea of the seven spirits that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven doesn't mean how many. It, it's talking about that fullness of perfection, the, the fullness of holiness that, that is um, the Holy Spirit. And so the introduction then would really be Jesus just emphasizing this close relationship that exists between himself, the Holy Spirit, and his church. And that makes a lot of sense because if you've, you know, what is a church without the Holy Spirit? It's a, it's a dead church. And, and so I think that makes sense. Feel free to... Do your own thing on that, though, because you'll find lots of different ideas. The other thing we see in this, in this intro is Jesus claiming his omniscience, which is just a $5 word for the fact that he knows everything. He says, I know your works. Jesus wants the church. He wants you as a member of the church. He wants me as a leader of the church to know that he knows 
our works. That's important for us to think about every once in a while, isn't it? He knows everything. He knows all the things we do. He knows what we think, what we teach, how we behave, how we treat people, our motives, our budgets, our secrets, all of it. And not only does he know about it, he cares a great deal about it. And he cares how we represent him as as his church. Nothing is hidden from his sight. So it's good for us to think on that a lot, probably. So that's the very short introduction. And then we get right into the indictment. There's three things Jesus mentions that he has a problem with in this church. And, and I'll just give them to you real quick, and then we're going to talk about them. The first one is that they were pretenders. They pretended to be alive when they weren't. So they, he gets on them about this kind of hip, hypocritical, inauthentic image they have. The second one is, is that their works were incomplete. Somehow their works fell short. And then the third one is that their clothes didn't match their claims. Their, their garments were filthy. And we're going to talk about those things. So he starts out first by, by telling them that they have a reputation. Did you know that churches have reputations? I mean, we, if I were to mention any church that is well-known in this area, you would probably know something. Oh, that, that's the church that, you know, oh, those are the ones that, you know, you kind of know, you have an idea. You don't know everything, but, but churches have reputations. Sardis had the reputation for being alive. The people inside and outside of this church would have described themselves or, or described this church as a place that's just thriving, full of activity and life and busyness. That's what it looked like to everybody. But Jesus disagrees. And he says, no, no, you're mistaken. There is no life here. This church is flatlined and, and you will not find a pulse. That's a scary thing to think about right there. This church had fooled the town and fooled themselves into believing that they were alive when they weren't. You know, you can fool uh, all of the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool God <laughs> None of the time. That's not the real saying, but I like it. It's sobering to think that this is a dead church whose lampstand has been almost taken out, if not completely taken out, and they had no idea. God's about to turn out the lights. Jesus is, is, is like left the building, and they're just going about business as usual. Just let's, let's, let's do church. Let's go through the motions like we always do. And that tells us something very important, that a church can be full of people and full of activity and have absolutely no purpose and no usefulness for the kingdom of God. Uh, That's just like kind of astonishing to consider. That's what this church was. This is what they'd become. They were just pretending. It's just, I couldn't help but think of that. There was a Seinfeld episode where Kramer pretended to work at this place and he didn't. And they were, it's just like, you know, you don't even work here. I know it's like, yeah, it's kind of weird that they're just pretending to have a job. They're pretending to go to church every week and there's, they, they're, they're not doing anything. Now, interestingly, the city of Sardis had the exact same reputation issue as the church of Sardis. No doubt Jesus assumed they would catch this, that this wouldn't be lost on them. Because Sardis was once a thriving city. They were considered the pride of Asia. Uh, and everybody knew that that had changed except for them. Okay? They were like the only ones that didn't get the memo. In fact, there was a competition to see who was going to get the next temple built at one point in time between this church, Sardis, and the church of Smyrna. And Sardis, when they went to before the board, I imagine, to, to you know, make their pitch for why they should get the temple, all they had to talk about was the glory days what they once were. That's what they led with. This is who we've been, you know, in the past. 
Smyrna came in and said, this is who we are now. And this is who we're going to become. And guess who got the, the new temple? Not Sardis, Smyrna. They still were acting like they were a thriving city, but they hadn't been for a long time. And they were actually now on the decline. And they just didn't know it. They based their identity in what once was and not on the current state of affairs. I think experts refer to this as Uncle Rico syndrome, if you're not familiar with that. This is that, that thing where you live in the past. Oh, the glory days. If only I could go back to that time. And, and you, that's where you kind of live and find your identity. Do you think God cares more about a past fruitfulness or a present one? Definitely a present one. Past matters for sure, but, but he, he, he's concerned about what's going on right now. And the city of Sardis and the church of Sardis both had reputations that didn't match up with reality. And as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about the American church because the American church has a reputation. If I were to ask most people um, in our country if the church is alive and well, I think, I think most people would say yes, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. You would say yes, the church is alive and well. And I realize Christianity has a, a very large umbrella with lots of stuff underneath it, and, and that, that matters because not, not everything that's called Christian is Christian. But do you remember those statistics a few years back that, that when they asked Americans how many were Christians, it was like 80% of people said they were Christians. 80%. Now, it probably isn't that way anymore. I, haven't, I didn't look at a current poll, but I remember that number sticking in my head. 80% of people say they're Christians. We have a reputation of being alive, but something ain't adding up, right? If you think about this, do, do you think eight out of the 10 people you meet are followers of Jesus, born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, followers of Jesus? No. I mean, that, that number can't be anywhere near right. I, I would say one in 10. Maybe, I mean, here I have better odds, obviously. You guys are going, wait a minute. I meant, you know, yeah, that wasn't meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this means something very significant. If eight out of 10 people are saying that they're Christians, and we know that's not correct, that means that these are going to be part of that crowd that stands before Jesus someday and says, Hey, I, I knew you. I know you. I, you and me, are, we're, we're close. We're buddies, you and me, Jesus. Remember? Remember all the, the stuff I did for you? Remember all the times I went to church? Remember all the times I prayed and asked you for help? We're tight, you and me, right? And what is he going to say to them? No, I don't, you don't look familiar to me. I don't think we've ever met. I never knew you. I never knew you. They say they're the real thing, but there is no life there. And we need to understand that if you're attached to the root, fruit happens. There will be life. Life will exist if you're truly attached. doesn't mean you're going to live a perfect life, but there's going to be something there. And eight out of ten people think there's something there that's they're, they're wrong. Now, as, as we consider this letter, it wouldn't be um, right if we didn't take the mirror out and, and think about our own reputation and our own what we are as a church. Um, I know we have a reputation, and I know that it probably varies. Generally speaking, I think we have a pretty good reputation in our community, and I'm happy for that. When I think about the, uh, the reputation that I, I hope we have and I think we have, this is kind of what I, I think it would look like. I think we have a reputation for being a church that is very genuine and, and real. So when somebody comes in here, they, they feel like we're not, we're not pretending. We're, they're seeing the real thing, and, and, and I've heard that over and over again. There's something authentic about this place, and that's a very important thing because this is something people crave right now because so much of everything around us is contrived and fake and plastic and everybody knows it. And a lot of churches are that way. And generally speaking, we're not. That means we're kind of a messy church sometimes. 
but we're a real church. I also hope that we're a church that gladly welcomes everybody into our midst, even sinners, even those guys. You know those, you know those sinners? You've heard about them, right? That's who all of us are, but churches act like that's not the deal so often. It's like, yes, we want the beautiful people and the, and the good people to come in, but not the riffraff. Let's not, you know, maybe they can go to another church. One of the reasons we planted where we did and, and tried to do this is because we wanted to attract people that no other churches wanted. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying we did that. <laughs> I'm, I'm on a roll. I'm not saying we, we accomplished that, but you know, we wanted to find, we wanted to go into a place that there wasn't a church presence where people were broken and hurting and they didn't have a place that maybe they could, they could relate to. And that's partly why we got started. It's going to get better. I promise. <laughs> I also hope that um, not only are we a church that, that wants everyone to come in and, and, and not, you know, obviously not stay the way they are, but we want them to feel welcome here. We want to be uh, known as a church that loves people and serves them in a meaningful way. And that's why we do things like the, the free food market and the warming center in Lapine and, and a lot of these different things is because we want people to know us as a generous and caring church. And those are all great things to be known for, but it can't stop there. If that's where it stops, what are we exactly? And what are we doing exactly? Our works at that point would not be complete in the sight of God. We must also have a reputation as a church that continually magnifies the person and the work of Jesus Christ for sinners. If we're not about that every week, every day, every hour, what are we doing? So we have to be diligent to tell others about Jesus every chance we get, who he is, why he came, what he does for people. We also must be a church that's committed to proclaiming all of God's word, all of it, not just the parts we like, not just the parts that are going to tickle somebody's ears or make them feel good, every bit of it and hold fast to what it teaches. And, and people, this is slipping away quickly. I just read about another large church that decided that this isn't really the word of God and that this really isn't relevant for our times. It's, how can this keep up with what we've got going on nowadays? And, and they're, they're jettisoning, God, jettisoning God's word. And that's a big problem. We, can, we can't do that. We can never become more concerned about filling our seats uh, than we do about proclaiming the truth. This will work itself out somehow. I'm always surprised, honestly, when people stay, you know, because we do have, this is the, the kind of the double-edged sword of this reputation thing I'm talking about. On one hand, we're a blessing to people. They like, they like some of us, they like, not some of us, some of what we do, I should say. There I go again. I'm, I'm just, man, you guys are going to have a chip on your shoulder when you leave. <laughs> I mean, as far as like, our, they, they love our authenticity. They love our willingness to, to accept everyone. They love uh, our generosity and the things we do for the community. But they're going to be completely offended by the things we teach, most likely. If we teach God's word faithfully and teach the exclusivity of Jesus, they're going to be offended. So you're going to have both of those things happening. And so many churches aren't doing both of those things. They might be doing one. They might be doing the other. They're not doing both. And this is where like you need the chocolate and the peanut butter to come together into that one good thing where both of those things exist. A good church will be faithful to do both. Well, one of the things we learned from this letter that's not, it's not explicit. It's not written right out here, but it is implicit is that this church in Sardis wasn't offending anybody. You see that? There's no enemies mentioned in this letter. They're not saying that Satan's coming against this church, that the Jews are coming against this church, the Romans. Nobody's coming against this church. Nobody seemed to have a problem with what they were doing. 
and with them existing in their community. What does that tell you? It tells you there was no reason for an enemy to come against this church. They weren't bothering anybody. They weren't making any kind of stand against false teaching or immorality. They weren't being exclusive in their beliefs. They were the perfect example of inoffensive, inoffensive Christianity. Christianity that offends no one, which isn't Christianity at all. The fact that, that they weren't doing anything that upset anyone or that would get them in trouble plainly tells us that they weren't preaching the gospel. And the reason I say that is because the gospel is offensive. We're not supposed to just be offensive for the sake of being offensive. You know, it's not like we just need to go out of our way to try to make people mad and offend them. The gospel message is what I'm talking about when I talk about offending people. Because the gospel message says you're a sinner, that you need a savior, you're desperate in need of a savior, and Jesus is the only way for you to be reconciled to God. That is so narrow-minded and exclusive in the world's way of doing things that it's going to be offensive. It won't win you any friendships with the world when you proclaim that message faithfully. So we know they couldn't have been doing that in Sardis because they were just fine with everybody there. And that's kind of when you think about what Sardis was like, this was a place that had... So when they dug up the ruins of Ephesus, which is not Sardis, but nearby, there were 30 different temples. So just think about that for a minute. 30 different options, varieties, like a a buffet of which God you wanted to go and worship. And in Sardis, they would have had these same options. Plus they had Judaism and they had Christianity. And everybody was just like, you know, everybody in the pool, come on in, the water's great. Everybody was a big happy family, sort of. And, and what we find is that even in the marketplace, when they dug up the ruins in Sardis, you'd go into the marketplace and you'd find a booth that has crosses on it next to a, a booth, like a kiosk where they would sell things with Jewish symbols on it next to one that had Roman symbols on it. They were all just together, right? Hanging out, one big happy family. This is what's known as a pluralistic society. That means like for, for in, in America for a really long time, we were kind of in the center of everything. And everybody kind of knew that. This was a Christian nation is kind of how it was thought of. That's not really, I don't know if you've noticed, there's been a shift. The rules have changed. We're not in the center anymore. We're off into the margins with everybody else and everything else in this pluralistic kind of society. That's what Sardis was like. And what this means is, you know, the rules have changed. What, what, what does that mean for us? It means that as long as you don't elevate one religion or belief system over another, we're good. Everybody's fine. Okay? You can have your truth. I can have my truth. You can have your beliefs. I can have my beliefs. Perfect. Anything goes as long as you remain inclusive, right? As long as you remain tolerant, as long as you accept everybody else's beliefs, even agree with them to some extent. If you do that, we won't have any problems. But the minute you make your God or your beliefs more important or greater than someone else's, you're in big trouble. And this is exactly what Christianity does. There's no way around it. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, that doesn't leave options for anything else. He didn't say, hey, I'm one, I'm one possible truth. I'm one possible way. You know, this is one way you could live your life. That's not what Christianity teaches. And this creates a big problem. It creates a big problem for them and us in that kind of scenario. They weren't doing this in Sardis. See, for the Christian, this means we have to make a decision. Are we going to blend in and not rock the boat, not make any waves? If that's how we decide to be, that means we're going to just have to compromise and try not to offend ever. Or do we stay faithful to Christ, risk making waves, risk being on the outside, and, and maybe even worse? The church of Sardis made a decision to compromise and not offend 
That's what they did. And, and you know what that results in? A dead church. <laughs> Plain and simple. The reason they were a dead church is because they, they compromised. They, they weren't doing the things they were supposed to do in this regard. So this brings us to the second indictment that Jesus had against them, and that, that is that their works were not complete in the sight of God. So their report card would have said, assignments incomplete, late, missing. I used to have that. I remember that very clearly. Every report card had that on it. So I can relate to this. So we know this church looked alive but was dead. And and now we learn that they were doing good works, but that these works fell short. Well, what does that mean? How How do your works become inadequate in God's sight or unfinished in his sight? Well, we have to ask the question, what are our works supposed to do? They should glorify God and validate the reality that Christ is alive and in our midst. That's what our works should do. Their works weren't doing that. They weren't brought to completion because they never closed the loop back to Jesus. They never closed the loop back to to Christ. And many churches are doing this today. Um, You'll find that there are a lot of churches that do all kinds of wonderful things for their community all the time. And, and they're known kind of as this church that's alive, but they never connect the dots back to Jesus as the reason why. And so that would be like building a bridge that makes it halfway across the river. It's like, what, what good is that? And you can convince yourself that you're doing good, but you're, you're not actually getting anybody to Jesus. <laughs> so that's a problem. Jesus clearly isn't okay with this. Even though good works are important in a church, don't misunderstand that, they are. The reason that they they exist is that they would point people to the reality of Jesus in our lives and for the need for Jesus in their lives. That's the main idea behind them. Their works were incomplete. And then the last thing Jesus keys in on is a problem in their church is found in verse 4 where he points out that there were only a few in the church who had not soiled or stained their garments. And that tells us that the majority of the people in the church had. Jesus does not want people claiming to be his followers claiming to be clothed in righteousness and then walking around wearing filthy garments. Your clothes should match your claims. So that would be, I think Randy's a pretty diehard Ducks fan. So let's just say Randy's always talking about, I'm, the, I'm a Ducks fan. I love the Ducks. The Ducks are my, you know, loyal, devoted. But every time we see him, he's wearing beaver gear. <laughs> I know. I know this is extreme. But at some point, would you not say, okay, wait a minute, Randy, I don't, I don't, something's not adding up here. What's this about? And that, that, that's what we're describing here. This church didn't look any different than anyone else around them. A Christian who has been clothed in the white righteousness of Christ should stand out like a sore thumb in, in the midst of everyone else. Now, that doesn't mean we don't ever get, get some stuff. You know, we will. That James even brings us up by telling us to keep ourselves from being stained by the world. We're, we're supposed to be careful in this regard. But the bottom line is this. If your desire is to win the approval of the world, you're going to get your garments dirty real quick and, and real often. But if your desire is to glorify and please your Savior, you're going to want to do everything you can to keep these things pristine. I can't help but think of the, the illustration that the church is the bride of Christ. A bride on her wedding day, when she gets her dress on, isn't going to go out and like you know roll around in the in the yard or in the dirt before she goes in to to meet her groom. And we need to think that way. A beautiful bride adorned in white. 
Now, this does not mean that we avoid the people of the world. I know this is a strategy some people think, oh, easy, I'll just, you know, I'll just lock myself in a, in a corner and nobody, I'll never get around people. That's not what this is saying. Uh, you have to, we still have to engage, we still have to be around it. It just means that we, we don't spend more time there with them than we do with God's people um, and the church because it will begin to take an effect. So those are the indictments, and then we come to the instructions. And I like that there are instructions because this means there's, there's hope that if this church will follow these instructions and heed his warnings, there's a chance that, that things will change. The first thing Jesus tells them to do is wake up. I've always wanted to do that in church just to see if anybody he's like, comes like, wake up. This is that idea. You remember the old Westerns when you had to go rouse the drunk? They would get like the barrel. They always had a barrel of cold water handy. And you would go over and just splash it on this guy and assault him with this cold water to wake him up and get him out of his stupor. That's what this is talking about. Jesus wants the church to wake up. Praise God for wake-up calls and for the opportunity that he gives us to turn to him through that. You know, I, I, it just so happens that um, I got a wake-up call last week. Uh, it's interesting when you're preparing a sermon that God does these, these things for you to, to give you good illustrations. Um, I found out I've got a problem with my heart. Um, it's something I've, I've now learned that it's a congenital a birth defect. I don't like to call it that. Congenital sounds way better than birth defect. But I have a valve that is a problem in my heart, and I'm going to have to get it fixed. And it's kind of scary. It's uh, probably going to require open-heart surgery, they said. But once they uh, go in and fix it, I'll be good as new, uh, supposedly. Uh, that's a wake-up call. That, you know, if you were to ask me uh, how concerned I was about my health two weeks ago, <laughs> I mean, I just wasn't. Guess how concerned I am now? Extremely concerned. I didn't have a sense of urgency. Now I do. And I imagine this church might have felt the same way after reading Jesus' letter. They, they were just thinking everything's good. Everything's fine. And then they get this letter and went, uh-oh, wake-up call. Now the logical question you ask after hearing something like this is, what do I do now? <laughs> I've asked that. What do I do now? Jesus is happy to tell them. He says, strengthen what remains? Wake up, strengthen what remains. Wake up calls are intended to create desperation that leads to action. And I can tell you, I have never been so motivated to make changes in my life as I am now. I, I want to cut out all the things that I know that are bad for me. I want to start doing all the things that I know are good for me. And I want to stick with that because I understand what will happen if I don't. I'm eating vegetables, people. I mean, that's, that's, that's where we're at now. Egg whites. It, desperate times, right? <laughs> Within this church, there certainly didn't seem like there was much left to work with, but Jesus has given them that, that little glimmer of hope. He, he's, he's telling them, you know, there's a chance. That gives you motivation. That gives you hope to do something. And so he's saying, you know, hey, just fan that, that little ember back into flame. Nurse that sick heart back to health. Do whatever's needed. And then he gives them the, the prescription they need to accomplish it. He says, remember what you have received and heard. And this is most certainly a reference to the gospel message that they had previously heard. At some point in time, the gospel was clearly preached to this church. Now, he may re be reminding of them that you guys have a seed that somebody gave you at one time. And, and maybe you deposited that away for, for a more convenient time like we do. 
I, that might be what he's saying. Get that seed back out and reevaluate it and, and plant that thing and, and pay attention to it. That might be what he's talking about. Believe that message and live. Or he might be talking to Christians who have wandered off, who have gotten caught up in the world, kind of the prodigal son kind of thing. And he's, and he's saying, hey, guys, get out of the pig slop. Come back. Turn and come back. It could be either one of those things. But he's reminding them to pay attention to the gospel. And this is such a good reminder for Christians to, to remember that we never graduate from the gospel. Never. It's not something you hear one time, you believe it and are saved, and then you just tuck it away. You need to remember the gospel every day. Preach the gospel to yourself faithfully every day. I, I can't help but think of the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's revisiting the gospel because it, it, it's reminding you of what God did to save a wretch like you and me. Remember what you were saved from? Remember what you were saved for? And remember what it cost God to provide it for you? If you spend some time every day doing that, you know what it does for me is it, it makes me want to keep my garments white. It makes me want to please my father. It makes me want to worship him. It makes me want to present myself as a living sacrifice to him because it's just fresh in my mind and my heart. When we do this, it's like breath for your lungs and fuel for your soul. It does something to, to recalibrate you, to point you back to true north. The next thing he, he tells them, the instruction is to keep it. So remember the gospel, keep it and repent. And the word keep is a military term that means to guard it so that it can't get away. He's saying, hold fast to the gospel and turn away from everything else. Repentance is one of those words we use a lot, but it really just means a change of mind that results in a change of action. And it's not something you do once and, and then you're done. It's something you sometimes have to keep doing and keep doing and keep doing. And if you're like me, that, that seems kind of frustrating sometimes. It's like, Lord, I turned from that once. Well, you got to do it again. So always turning away from those things that lead us away from Christ always running back towards him. Well, what was it they were supposed to repent of? The first thing that was really a problem here is their hypocrisy. They were all image and no substance. And he wants them to be the real deal. He wants them to look like they're alive because they are actually alive. That's all he's asking for. That's a reasonable thing. He wants them to, to stay attached to the vine that the Holy Spirit would fuel this church and that that would be the reason they look alive, not just because they're full of activity. He also wants them to stop desiring the approval of men, stop compromising, stop kind of settling for this mediocre, inoffensive version of Christianity that they've come to accept. Make a clear stand, even if it costs them everything. And he wants them to repent of not making Jesus the star of the show. You know, if we ever get to that point... <laughs> Please just go home and don't come back. I mean, warn us. But if we ever get to the point where we aren't just constantly making Jesus the star of the show and putting the spotlight on him and making him everything, we're in trouble. I love that they get a wake-up call, that they get an opportunity to change. That is God's mercy. He also, though, gives them a warning of what will happen if they don't change. And, and that is also God's mercy. The warning is, is found there in verse 3. He says, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Um, 
the warning had a specific meaning for the people of Sardis, and it would have gotten their attention, I believe, because the city of Sardis was built on this this kind of a uh, mountain top kind of thing, this hillside that had cliffs all the way around it. And so they were kind of known as being imprinted, uh, unable to be broken into. I felt like it was an Elmer Fudd moment right there. Impenetrable. Uh, they even had a well-known saying at that time, of kind of like what we talk about Fort Knox today. They had one that, that was, you know, you might as well try to capture Sardis because that was mission impossible. But the ironic thing is there were two different times in their history when an enemy found their way in, uh, snuck in, captured them, caught them off guard and captured them. Twice it had already happened. I couldn't help but thinking about how complacency um, can just ruin a church. And, I, I, you know, the church for so long in our country, I think, has just grown. We felt safe. We felt secure. We felt untouchable. We felt protected in this way that, like, oh, nothing can get to us. And so we've gotten very complacent. And I, I'm pointing the finger at myself when I say that. I, I, I feel like I've just I've fallen asleep in so many ways because I haven't had this urgency to be on guard. And Jesus is trying to get their attention and say, you know, you may think that you're safe. You may think that you can ignore me. You may think you can relax and take it easy, but you would be wrong. I can come in as well, and I will come in. For those that ignore him, he says he's going to come against them like a thief, and they won't know when he's coming. That's terrifying. I mean, just if I were to tell you, hey, Jesus is coming against you today, you'd be like, what's happening now? That's, that's, That's a terrifying thing to hear. Now, this could refer to Jesus coming in judgment against churches that are like this, and, and saying that he's going to come in and shut them down. That would make a lot of sense in this context, but it could be referring to his second coming, the day of the Lord. Either way, it doesn't sound good for those who ignore his warning. And I'm glad that Jesus cares so much about his churches and how they represent him that he's willing to act when, when they get off and, and too far. And I'm glad that he offers a window of time for repentance. Of course, the question is, will they? Sardis, uh, if you go there today, you'll just see ruins. And the closest town is a place called Sart, and there's no Christian presence there at all. But the good news is that God has always had a remnant of people that will continue to believe and will overcome. And, and we see this all throughout the Bible. Even when things look the darkest and it seems like all hope is lost, God has those few that will remain. And I couldn't help but thinking about Elijah, uh, the prophet. At one point when, when he's, you know, Jezebel, the, the prophets of Baal are coming against him. He just thinks he's alone now. There's nobody else. And he says to God, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life now. And the idea is, you know, God, are you paying attention? I'm the only one left. And if I die, then what are you going to do? You know, it's like, ooh, what, what, you know, and God says, I love God's answer to him. I'm not picking on Elijah. He was awesome. God says this, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So it's just a reminder that God's plan and purposes will prevail. Even when it doesn't look like that's what's happening around us, we can trust that. He reminds us uh, in verse four of that. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And I have to confess that when I read in Revelation and for years now, when I would read about um, the fact that I am a conqueror or an overcomer or the victorious one, I would read that and I would think, Well, clearly they're not, they don't know me. Uh, I don't, I would never describe myself 
in any of those ways. Uh, I, I'm kind of the opposite of, of an overcomer or a conqueror, I feel like. And, and so I would read this and I would always think, oh, this is worrisome to me. What does this mean for me? But, but I have to ask you the question, do you know what makes you an overcomer? It's Jesus. <laughs> Plain and simply, Jesus is the one who makes you an overcomer. It's his righteousness. It's his, his, um, his life substituted for yours that makes you an overcomer. If he has caused you to be born again, you will persevere till the end. And I hope you know that. I, I love this truth. It, it's, it's spelled out for us in 1 John 5, where it says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's why we overcome, because he overcame and we trust in him. If I've trusted in his substitutionary life, death, and resurrection for me, I'm an overcomer. And he wants to make sure that the Christians, the few Christians that remain in the church of Sardis know this. So he gives them three assurances, and we're going to close with these. These are assurances for you even now. The first assurance that Jesus gives to those who are his is that they will walk with him in white garments, for they are worthy. This is such a cool picture of of a king, a victorious king returning from battle and his loyal subjects there in white to greet him. And and you can't help but picture Jesus returning um, to, you know, again, he's the one on the white horse. He's the conquering king. And we, his loyal subjects, clothed in white that he gave us coming with him. That means that, by the way, that spoiler alert, that in the end, he wins, which means we win. These white robes are also symbolic of the righteousness of Christ that we're clothed in. And that's, that's what makes us worthy, his righteousness, not ours. The next assurance that he gives to those that are um, his is that he will never blot their name out of the book of life. People try to use this verse to teach that they, a person can lose their salvation, but that's not at all what this verse is saying. This is uh, a promise of security to those who overcome, not a warning. He does not say that a person can be erased. It doesn't say that there. He's assuring them that it won't. And the reason that I know this is because of what Jesus says in in John 6. Jesus very clearly says, starting in verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You could almost put blot out in there. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. How many times do you think Jesus failed to accomplish the Father's will? <laughs> yeah. None. Never. Not once. If he loses one, he will have failed to accomplish the Father's will. He will not do that. And that means you and I are secure. That we don't have to worry about, you know, I think if, if my name could be blotted out, <laughs> it would. It would be blotted out. Probably already a few times today, you know, in, then out. Oh, no, he's out. Okay, there you go. We'll put him back. Oh, he's out. I mean, that's what my life would be like. I don't want that. So I love this, this, this truth that Jesus won't lose one. Spurgeon once said, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you, but his hold on you. Praise God for that. So the last assurance he gives us, and, and I love this one, is that he will confess our name before his father and before his angels. Just think about that for a minute. Think about Jesus standing before his father and the angels and confessing that he knows you. He knows you. This is just craziness to me to think about. 
he will not be ashamed to associate with me. And this is the exact opposite of I never knew you. We talked about that before. You know, when people come, Lord, didn't, I never knew you. This is the exact opposite of that. Oh, yeah, I know him. He's with me. These assurances are fantastic things for us to hold on to. And I, I, if you don't have these, I pray that you would, you would not leave here today without grabbing hold of them. Come and talk to, to one of us. He who has an ear, let him hear. Right? Father, thank you for these letters. Again, thank you that they, they give us an opportunity to really look deeply into a mirror and to, to see what, what about this describes us and, and what do we need to do as a church. Lord, I pray for your blessing upon the church here, the church in Lapine, that we would continue to be a church that um, glorifies your great name, that preaches your entire word, and that magnifies the work of your son Jesus, and that we would be a church that, that shares that lovingly, humbly, graciously with all those around us. Use our churches, use the people here in mighty ways to impact the kingdom we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.